Welcome to Oncology Today, a special program focused on key presentations on myeloproliferative neoplasms from the 2020 American Society of Hematology Annual Meeting. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For this program, I met with Dr. Aaron Gerds from the Cleveland Clinic Tossig Cancer Institute. To begin, Dr. Gerds talked about recent data on the treatment of myeloproliferative neoplasms with JAK inhibitors. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you all today. I'm excited to bring you some key updates from the 62nd Annual ASH American Society of Hematology meeting. And there was a lot of great research presented at this virtual format meeting, the first ever virtual format meeting for ASH. And although it was unusual times, there was a lot to share. So we'll get right into it. Today, we're going to cover a little bit of refresher, some updates on available JAK inhibitors, both ruxolitinib and fedratinib, as well as some treatments that are in development and may be coming to a clinic near you someday soon. So JAK inhibitors, and really the story with JAK inhibitors begins back in 1951 when Dr. Demeshek postulated there was some key factor amongst the myeloproliferative neoplasms linking them all together. They had such a distinct and consistent clinical phenotype and presentation that there must have been something linking them all together. But it wasn't until sometime in the late 2004, early 2005, when four groups independently reported on consistently recurring JAK2 mutations that led to constitutive JAK-STAT activation in patients with PV, ET, and myelofibrosis. We've gone on to learn that other mutations in calreticulin and MPL lead to the same constitutive JAK activation, thus providing an excellent target for treating these diseases. And it didn't take very long for JAK inhibitors to be developed and approved for treatment of both myelofibrosis and, in the case of ruxolitinib, polycythemia vera as well. The approvals were based largely on the COMFORT-1 and COMFORT-2 studies for ruxolitinib in myelofibrosis and the RESPONSE study for ruxolitinib in polycythemia vera. Fedratinib was approved more recently, and this is based on the Jakarta and Jakarta-2 studies. The Jakarta study was in a frontline setting without having received prior JAK inhibitors. And the Jakarta-2 study was in a second-line study, so patients who had already received ruxolitinib at some point in time. And whenever you go to a talk with some guy at a podium who's talking about the treatment of myeloproliferative neoplasms, no doubt you will see an algorithm littered with JAK inhibitors. So it's really become the backbone of therapy for these patients. And we often reference these comfort studies and what the ruxolitinib and fedratinib have been able to do for patients. But I want to remind you that this is in the context of a clinical trial. It may not be what we're seeing in, quote, unquote, the real world. So a lot of analyses presented at the annual American Society of Hematology meeting were updates on what we see in the real world with these JAK inhibitors. This here is some pooled data from the COMFORT studies showing overall survival in patients who are treated with ruxolitinib and patients who are treated on the control arms. Mind you, there was crossover here, but there was a significant advantage for ruxolitinib in the setting. The median time on ruxolitinib in the comfort studies was about three years, to give you a point of reference. So again, one of the abstracts presented at this year's meeting was a real-world analysis in patients with myelofibrosis treated with ruxolitinib. And this is a study that we've seen done in particularly CML, where we look at the survival of patients before approval of a TKI, like imatinib, and we compare it to survival after the introduction of imatinib into commercialization and availability to all patients. So they they used Medicare fee-for-service database to really kind of get at this. Has life changed after the approval of ruxolitinib type question? 
So they spread things out here based on dates within this Medicare fee-for-service database, where Ruxlet was approved in November of 2011. So they looked at patients before then, this pre-approval group, as well as after then, and broke that down into two different groups, shown in the lower right-hand corner. So group two was post-approval, Rux unexposed. Group three was post-approval, Rux exposed. They ended up putting together 1,677 patients in this database. And really, no matter what group patients fell in, it was pretty well balanced between the groups in terms of age, background, geography, history of prior MPN. The only difference we might see is in group three, down towards the bottom of this table, group three may have had a slightly better comorbidity index. So they may have been a little bit fitter population, perhaps. But nonetheless, it's clear that patients who were treated with ruxolitinib post-approval did much better than those who were not treated with ruxolitinib post-approval. Now, again, this is not a randomized controlled trial, and there may be lots of reasons why patients may not get ruxolitinib after its approval, but clearly the survival was better for those who got ruxolitinib. The kind of curious thing here is that survival for both these groups was better than pre-approval. So it makes you wonder about our ability to diagnose myelofibrosis early on and the awareness of the disease and how we treated it before ruxolitinib came along. And so the group here on their conclusions really emphasized that the survival was better after approval of ruxolitinib, which we do all expect, and that's consistent with the randomized controlled trials that have been done using JAK inhibitors. Another group looked at ruxolitinib in polycythemia vera, and these are some long-term results from the RESPONSE 2 study. Now, the RESPONSE 1 study was the one that ultimately led to the approval of ruxolitinib in polycythemia vera, but the RESPONSE 2 study you didn't have to have a big spleen. So in the original response trial, you had to have a palpable spleen in order to go on study because one of the primary endpoints there was splenic reduction. So this was looking specifically at count control in patients without a big spleen. And this abstract really focused on the long-term analysis. And so the original trial schema shown here with ruxolitinib being in the top part of the figure, the best available therapy in the bottom of the figure, there's randomization, there was a crossover at week 28, and 59 patients completed all 260 weeks of therapy in the ruxolitinib arm. In the crossover arm, 38 patients got all the way out to week 260, and effectively no patients made it out that far for best available therapy. On the left-hand side of this slide, we'll see that hematica control for patients who were treated with ruxolitinib was quite durable. So in fact, at week 260, they were unable to determine the median at that point. So the curve stayed above the 50% line for hematica control. So not only are you getting hematica control with ruxolitinib, it's quite durable. And the interesting thing about the figure on the right-hand side is that the patients who crossed over all had excellent control of their hematica too that was maintained. So the dark blue line at the top is best available therapy, and you can see it wiggle woggles there around hematica to 45, where the crossover blue line is elevated, but then at week 28 after the crossover, it dips and mirrors that of the ruxolitinib arm. Overall survival was not different between the different groups in the study. And like the original response study, we did see improvements in quality of life, particularly when we focus in on symptoms that may be related to their polycythemia vera, such as night sweats, itchy skin, and bone pain. The key event here that we want to focus on are thrombolic events. So the big question is, is ruxolinib able to reduce thrombotic events in patients with polycythemia vera? Now, this study was too small to prove that was certainly not powered for that. You'd have to follow a lot of patients for a very long time to show that. But there doesn't seem to be any excess thrombotic events, certainly in the best available therapy arm, nor in the crossover arm. So they are pretty comparable. But again, the study wasn't really powered to show that conclusively. 
So at the end of the day, we still base our treatment decisions in polycythemia vera on how can we get the hematocrit under 45%. No matter if we get there by plane, boat, or train, ruxolitinib, hydroxyurea, or phlebotomies, the key is getting the hematocrit under 45%. So fedratinib. Fedratinib has a long and winding history. And it was actually being developed concurrently with ruxolitinib, but went on a extended hold from the FDA over concerns of Wernicke's encephalopathy. Upon further diving into those concerns, it turned out that that wasn't necessarily the case, that there was a relationship between fedratinib and developing Wernicke's encephalopathy, and the drug ultimately became approved. So there's a lot of interest in the long-term safety of fedratinib. And this analysis of a couple of original trials with fedratinib looked to kind of shed some light on that topic. So this was the results of the phase one and phase two extension studies. And so these patients are the patients who've been on fedratinib the longest. So the thought was, well, we take these patients who've been on it for a very long time, and we can see if there are any long-term side effects or changes in their side effects on this medication. It isn't a lot of patients. In the long-term cohort, there was only 28 patients. All patients from the dose-finding study was 59 patients. And when we look at the long-term safety signal here, what we really want to focus on are two things. One is the GI side effects. Now, that's the most common side effects we run into in the clinic, perhaps the most challenging side effects to deal with, the nausea, diarrhea, and vomiting-type side effects. And that's largely because of fedratinib's effect on FLT3. Certainly, there was a significant amount of diarrhea and nausea early on, but it didn't seem to increase over time in these patients who were on the drug for an extended period of time, which is excellent. So it seems like once you kind of get it under control and get patients on a regimen going forward, you can maintain them on therapy. There was a slight signal in pneumonias seen with long-term therapy. And in fact, one of those cases was a fungal pneumonia. Now, it's unclear if this is a cause of fedratinib or an errant signal of patients with deranged immune systems due to long-standing myelofibrosis, but certainly something to kind of keep an eye on for your patients on fedratinib. And of course, there's a lot of focus on neurologic events with these folks, and really there was no signal of consistent neurologic events. The most severe neurologic events was post-herpetic neuralgia, which is, of course, more related to a case of shingles as opposed to actually fedratinib itself. And again, no suspected cases of Wernicke's encephalopathy were reported in this cohort of patients. So at the end of the day, the investigators concluded that the long-term safety data so far in this instance looks quite favorable, that patients can maintain their therapy for a long period of time without acquiring new side effects or adverse events. And of course, the ongoing freedom studies are looking to address long-term safety issues with fedratinib as well. So JAK inhibitors are great. In fact, there are a lot of them being developed or have been attempted to be developed. One of them here is currently in phase three studies. That is momolotinib. And why is momolotinib interesting? Well, it's a little bit different than ruxolitinib and fedratinib. Yes, momolotinib here inhibits JAK1, inhibits JAK2, but it also has this off-target effect on ACVR1. And ACVR1 may be a key player in anemia. So if you look at it, many patients with myelofibrosis will present with anemia. In fact, 40% will present with anemia, and many will develop it in the first few years after their diagnosis. And what momolotinib has done has shown a signal where patients who are anemic and, in fact, transfusion-dependent can become transfusion-independent when going on momolotinib. Now, that's often not what you think about JAK inhibitors. You think about marrow suppression. In fact, anemia as a major side effect of the approved JAK inhibitors. 
But the thought is that this off-target effect on ACVR1 is affecting hepcidin. And by affecting the hepcidin, we can improve erythropoiesis. And of course, hematologists love hepcidin. It's like talking to a Star Wars fan about the Millennium Falcon. You're just going to get everyone in the room all excited. So momolotinib has already been studied in two randomized phase three studies. The SimpleFi2 study, which is a phase three trial in patients previously treated with ruxolinib, as well as the SimpleFi1 study, which was a phase three study in JAK inhibitor naive patients. And this was a real analysis of these patients, kind of looking at the data that's available right now for patients treated with momolotinib. And they took, again, the SimpleFi1 data as well as the SimpleFi2 data to look really at survival. And these are the survival curves for SimpleFi1, looking at the momolotinib arm as well as the crossover arm. And they're superimposable. And the crossover arm sort of reached median survival here way out at the end of the curve. So not sure how reliable that is, but clearly this is an excellent curve for patients who are JAK inhibitor naive with a median over survival that's beyond 50 months. In the Simplify 2 study, we really see a median survival that is quite impressive. So these are, again, are patients who were previously treated with JAK inhibitors. And the median overall survival for both the momolotinib arm as well as the best available therapy arm that crossed over to momolotinib was well beyond 30 months, almost stretching to 40 months. In retrospective analyses of patients who were previously treated with ruxolitinib, we see median survival of somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 20 months. So this would... If true, again, we're cross-comparing things here. If this is true, this would be a significant advance for patients previously treated with JAK inhibitors. They did some initial analysis on durability of response, and it seems like here in the right-hand side of this figure that the spleen responses are quite durable for these patients. So once the spleen shrinks, it shrinks for a long time in the Simplify 1 study. But again, getting back to this whole story of anemia which I think is the most interesting part of this drug. So again, a fair number of patients who are transfusion dependent became transfusion independent on the study. And this Kaplan-Meier curve shows the durability of this response. So a median duration of transfusion independence was not reached in this particular study, well over three years. It wasn't that we're just improving anemia for a month or two or six months. These responses to anemia are quite durable. And we saw the same in this analysis with the Simplify 2 study. So these, again, are patients with prior treatment with JAK inhibitors. And the durability of transfusion independence was quite long for this study as well. Appreciably sicker population would be less likely to maintain that response. In fact, the duration of transfusion independence was quite durable for those. So based on this reanalysis and kind of focusing in on the whole question about anemia surrounding momolotinib, the Momentum Phase three trial has been launched and is ongoing where patients who are previously treated with a JAK inhibitor are symptomatic and anemic are being randomized between momolotinib and danazole. This is a placebo-controlled trial with plenty of blinding, but the nice thing is at week 24, patients can cross over to momolotinib. So we won't get some survival data from this necessarily comparing momolotinib to danazole, but we will get a good look at transfusion independence and anemia response for this drug, which could be potentially a path forward for it. So there are only two approved JAK inhibitors. Yep, just ruxolitinib and fedratinib. So at this point, how do you decide which one to use first? Yeah, so that's always a tough question. I think the way the labels are written for ruxolitinib and fedratinib, you could certainly start out with either. The labels aren't saying start with one or the other. 
And I think since Ruxolitinib has been around for so long, you know, it was approved in 2011 and has such a long safety record and a relative level of comfort with practitioners. Most people, if you have a patient with myelofibrosis who needs a JAK inhibitor and has a platelet count over 100, most people will start with Ruxolitinib in that instance. If a patient has already had ruxolitinib and they're no longer deriving benefit or didn't have a maximal response, many people in that case in the second line setting will consider fedratinib. There's been some data looking at patients with platelet counts between 50 and 100. Now, if you look at the package insert for ruxolitinib, you would back off the dose of ruxolitinib in order to avoid thrombocytopenia. But for fedratinib, you're able to deliver the full therapeutic dose. You're getting full JAK inhibition even in the setting of thrombocytopenia. And there's some retrospective analyses and ad hoc analyses suggest that maybe patients in the 50 to 100 range with their platelet counts might benefit a little bit more from fedratinib. So that's one instance where you would think about fedratinib, certainly in the frontline setting over ruxolitinib. So just to clarify, though, I mean, the idea that you use a drug that you've heard about for a long time, maybe you have some experience with, but other than that and the issue about the thrombocytopenia is there any way from a risk-benefit point of view to separate out these two drugs, the scheduling, anything at all? So the scheduling is a little bit different. So fedratinib is once a day, ruxolitinib is twice a day. But honestly, the other thing that kind of separates it out would be, one, the GI side effects for fedratinib. So certainly that is a concern and something that needs to be addressed. We often preemptively start patients on an anti-nausea medicine as well as an anti-diarrheal before even starting on fedratinib. So if a patient has a history of GI upset or various GI disorders, I would certainly try to avoid fedratinib in those folks. The other concern is, again, there is a black box warning for thiamine deficiency in Wernicke's and fedratinib. So anybody who has a history of neurologic disorders, I may avoid fedratinib in those patients as well. Certainly in everyone, I'm checking thiamine levels as the label indicates, but I would probably shy away from that. But outside that, there's no evidence to suggest that ruxolitinib or fedratinib is going to be superior to the other in the frontline setting. And then in terms of momolotinib, based on what we know about it at this point, are there situations where you would like to use it? Absolutely. So as these JAK inhibitors come to market potentially, I would expect that fedratinib, ruxolitinib in the frontline setting will certainly have the market for patients with play accounts that are relatively preserved. Where momolotinib would come in are those, say, 40% of patients at the time of diagnosis who need control of their spleen and symptoms, but are also anemic. So you could see an algorithm being developed. If a patient isn't anemic or isn't massively thrombocytopenic, they would go towards ruxolitinib or fedratinib. But if they are anemic, you would funnel them towards momolotinib. And then potentially pacritinib, the other JAK inhibitor still in phase three studies, so that drug is really focusing on thrombocytopenic patients, patients with low platelet counts. So you could see that kind of occupying that space. So you would see it where patients with preserved counts, you have ruxolitinib and fedratinib. Patients who are anemic, you would potentially do momolotinib. And patients who are thrombocytopenic, you would consider pacritinib. So when you look at the trials that have looked at upfront use of momolotinib, which I think you reviewed some, Yes. So if you compare them indirectly to the trials of ruxolitinib and fedratinib, does it look the same or are the results less impressive? It does. Actually, you can look at it right now. So this is a one-slide kind of summary of the development of momolotinib in the phase three studies that have been completed so far. If we look at JAK inhibitor-naive patients with myelofibrosis, so that's going to be 
you can imagine almost a direct comparison between the comfort studies and the Jakarta study. So at week 24, the spleen volume response was 26.5%. So it was not inferior against ruxolitinib in this study. The total symptom response at week 24 was also not inferior. So in that JAK inhibitor naive setting, it was pretty comparable to ruxolitinib. Even the second line setting, it's comparable to, would say, fedratinib. Maybe fedratinib cross-study comparison may have an edge, but there was a lot of flaws with the Jakarta 2 study in terms of how they defined JAK inhibitor failure. And that's the tricky part in patients who have already been exposed to ruxolitinib or a JAK inhibitor, because there's no clear definition of what JAK inhibitor failure is. And so every study does it a little bit different, so it's hard to cross-compare. But these are pretty comparable numbers there. And it's not surprising that it performs similarly to ruxolitinib and fedratinib, because if we look at the amount of JAK1 and JAK2 inhibition, it's quite similar. So momolotinib is pretty much in the same ballpark as ruxolitinib and fedratinib, particularly when we talk about JAK2 inhibition. So you would expect it to function, based on the mechanism of action, in a very similar fashion. So you mentioned using fedratinib in patients who previously had ruxolitinib, either progressed on it or maybe had been on it previously and had it stopped, maybe intolerant of it. What do we know about the efficacy and tolerability of fedratinib in that situation? Yeah. So certainly in patients who have had prior ruxolitinib, there are no other approved therapies necessarily. So compared to all the other approved therapies, it does a great job, <laughs> but it has its shortcomings. Now, certainly they do see a significant number of responses. And the original Jakarta 2 study included a broad swath of patients who were exposed to ruxolitinib. Whether you were exposed a very short period of time or a very long period of time, those folks were included in the study. So it's kind of hard to say. Someone who's truly JAK inhibitor refractory, you probably want to see them on therapy for a while, as opposed to someone got a week of therapy and then had a side effect and came off. But we're still seeing significant responses. It was presented at not this past ASH, but the ASH before the annual American Society of Hematology meeting, the 61st meeting, a reanalysis of the Jakarta 2 study, where more stringent definitions of JAK inhibitor intolerance and failure were applied to the population. So they excluded a whole bunch of people that really didn't fit these more stringent criteria. And it was still shown to be pretty darn effective, where upwards of one in five to one in four patients were having a clinically meaningful response. And does that line up with your own clinical experience? Yeah, really it does. So one of the nice things is that we now have two agents. And so one doesn't work, we can always switch to the other. But definitely there are situations where I've had difficulty delivering ruxolitinib in a standard care setting to a patient and have turned to fedratinib and seen positive benefits. I've had a couple of patients who could not tolerate ruxolitinib due to side effects such as headaches, and we were able to use fedratinib, and they've had clinically meaningful reductions in spleen size and symptom burden. I had another patient who was on ruxolitinib and had significant anemia as well as the patient at presentation had neutropenia. And it was becoming very difficult to deliver adequate doses of ruxolitinib without running into a lot of transfusions. And the patient also had kind of magic platelet count between 50 and 100. So I ended up starting them on fedratinib and they have done tremendously well where their spleen was not shrinking at all with ruxolitinib at the doses we were giving. I put them on fedratinib and I enjoyed actually a significant reduction in spleen size, probably about a 
20% reduction in the volume of the spleen. Could you tell me a story about a patient who clearly was not benefiting from ruxolitinib, at least at that point, or even getting worse, who benefited from fredrotinib? Yeah, so I had a patient about a year ago where we did that. So this patient was on ruxolitinib for about four years. And when we first started the patient on ruxolitinib, they had a really great response. Their spleen shrunk by at least half on exam. The patient's total symptom score went down by about 40%. Namely, spleen-related symptoms improved, but also some improvement in the night sweats. And the night sweats were kind of that telltale symptom. So about three and a half years after starting ruxolitinib, he started to notice that the night sweats were coming back. And a few months after that, he started to notice that the spleen was getting bigger and bigger. Very slow, very subtle, though. It took a couple of visits to really say, okay, yeah, your spleen is getting bigger. And we talked about different options at the time. We had a number of clinical trials available to him, as well as fedratinib, which had been approved at that time. And at the end of the day, he decided due to distance, he didn't want to do a clinical trial, and we started fedratinib. And so we got it approved, got him started on uh, antidiarrheal to begin with, started the fedratinib, and within about a month and a half, he started really having an excellent response. His spleen has shrunk back down, probably not quite to the level it was at its best on ruxolitinib, but it's getting pretty close. And his night sweats have resolved. I think that to me for him is kind of the best marker for disease control. So would you like to take a shot at explaining theoretically why that happened? The pharmacology behind why you might see this in terms of how these drugs work? Well, I think if I told you that I knew for certain why, I would be lying because I have no idea why. And I don't think anybody really truly knows why. We look at a table like I have up here with the different effects on the different jack molecules, and there's not a huge difference between fedratinib and ruxolitinib other than a little less jack one inhibition, a couple fold less inhibition of jack one, which maybe that could be part of it. Not sure why, but you would think that you would need more JAK1 inhibition, but somehow that might play into it. But probably what it is is an off-target effect. So we know that fedratinib hits FLT3, it hits RET amongst other mutations, even the mutation specifically JAK2 V617F. So it not only targets wild-type JAK, but it can also inhibit mutant JAK2. And you wonder if that has something to do with patients' responses after no longer benefiting from ruxolitinib. Wow, that's really interesting. Has fedratinib been looked at in other cancers? I mean, like solid tumors? There has been some discussion of looking at fedratinib in FLT3 mutated acute leukemias, but there have been so many other FLT3 inhibitors marching out front that that is no longer a focus. But there hasn't been a lot of exploration outside of myelofibrosis at this point. I think the Wernicke's encephalopathy story really derailed the general development of fedratinib. And Now that it is kind of back, it's approved now and available, there doesn't seem to be any additional safety signals, I wouldn't be surprised, particularly with the RET inhibition, if people don't come back and look at this for other diseases. Interesting. So from a practical point of view, is everybody all comfortable with the Wernicke's thing at this point? I believe so. Talking with my colleagues across the country and around the world, I think we all accept that this is something that we need to monitor. Certainly, we check thiamine levels in patients prior to starting therapy. But I don't think there's an overwhelming concern at all in a patient who certainly is able to eat an adequate diet over Wernicke's encephalopathy. If we look back at the original eight or nine cases that were described in the early studies, 
Only one of those was certainly a Wernicke's, was proven Wernicke's, and that patient certainly had significant nutritional deficiencies. So if we're inquiring about diet and we're checking thiamine levels, there's very little concern for Wernicke's. It's interesting. You talk about the different spectrum of activity, and I've seen these kinome drawings and stuff like that, comparing things. But again, from my dim understanding from 100,000 feet, one of the things about this is that these are cytokines, and it seems like there's a microenvironment thing that's a major. It's not like some of these driver mutation things, tumors you see in lung cancer or whatever. Somehow it's being mediated through cytokines, the symptomatology. Am I understanding the concept right, correctly? Exactly. It's all cytokines. JAK2 V617F inhibitors have been looked at and developed in myelofibrosis. So clearly targeting the mutant allele, targeting the mutant protein doesn't really seem to affect the disease any better than just attacking the wild type, say with Ruxolidem, attacking wild type JAK2. So it's clearly about driving down the cytokines, which all the JAK inhibitors can really do. Particularly Ruxolidem is excellent at driving down these disease-related cytokines. And in fact, when you look at other drugs being developed in the space that aren't JAK inhibitors, first things that people always show in their presentations are these major cytokine panels and showing, yes, just like Ruxolitinib, I can lower cytokine levels. So clearly that is what's doing the heavy lifting here. And it's not targeting necessarily the mutant clone or the driver mutation. Because really myelofibrosis in the MPNs, it's a complex interweb of a lot of lesions going on in these cells. It's not CML. And so that's why these somewhat dirtier JAK inhibitors can have positive effects for patients because it's hitting probably a couple of different things, maybe things we don't even know about or realize to improve the clinical outcome of these patients. And then the other thing that seems to be mixed through this whole thing, again, this macro view of this are cytopenias when the clinical sequela of the cytopenias as a specific issue. But again, I'm assuming in some way the cytopenias are related to cytokines or are they just direct effects of the drugs or the disease? Yes. Yes to both. So that's the challenge here is this is a disease that presents with cytopenias as a result of deranged hematopoiesis. Some of it's cytokine related. Some of it is hepcidin related due to inflammation. Some of it is due to perhaps iron deficiency and other causes. So the cytopenias are there for a lot of reasons at presentation. And then our best agents inhibit JAK2. And so we know that JAK-STAT pathway is the major pathway for our cytokines like erythropoietin, thrombopoietin, and other growth factors. And so not only are we starting out with a really kind of wonky vehicle here, we're also putting like a bunch of oil on the ground and everything's going to be sliding all over. So that's why we need to develop better therapies that don't lower blood counts, that spare hematopoiesis as much as we can, yet still treat the disease. Because that is the biggest Achilles heel of the JAK inhibitors, is they can cause cytopenias and do so to a large degree. I was just reflecting upon those data you showed there at the beginning in terms of how the disease has changed over the last 10 years and the numbers in terms of progression and all. But I saw those lines, but I also saw a lot of bases and people. And I remember when these trials first came out and like how it changed people's lives. And you don't see that in that kind of a graph, the number of people who went from being miserable to feeling good. Yeah, these studies never get the podium, right? Because they're not new, they're not exciting. And so they're often relegated to the poster hall. 
And when you're moving up and down the poster hall and you're kind of looking, okay, Ruxlinib, I've heard about that. It's not as exciting as whatever nib that's going to be cool and flashy and, and exciting. And sometimes it's worth stopping at these posters and reflecting on where we were, what we've done, and really where we are now. And as you see a curve like this, independent of what you think of Ruxlinib and the true effects, and you can certainly poke holes in this analysis, but the fact of the matter is the survival before Ruxlinib approval was terrible. And the survival after Ruxolitinib approval, even for unexposed patients, is much better. So Ruxolitinib is changing lives. Surge will often show a slide in his slide deck of this guy with this huge spleen. It was one of the patients on the phase one study. This guy had a spleen that was like jumping out of his body, like something from the movie Aliens. And he, this patient goes on Ruxolitinib and the spleen shrinks down. The patient's able to eat, puts on weight, and is doing amazingly. And I believe Surge says the patient is still on Ruxolitinib today. So you don't see that in this kind of figure. But what you do see is not only are patients feeling better, and we see that in clinic every time, but our awareness of the disease, our understanding of the disease, the way we go about the disease has evolved over time. And even for patients who don't get Ruxolitib, their outcomes have improved. And honestly, I think that's the most interesting and best take-home point from this particular project. That really is interesting. Well, also, I think about people who are new to the field. I mean, they didn't go through that thing when the comfort trials came out and people really understood what was going on to these patients, right? Yeah, you just prescribe your jacket. But yeah, there's a reason that these ended up in the New England Journal of Medicine. It really revolutionized care. And that's why those studies are there because they're a big deal. But the thing to me is we do CME in every part of oncology. So we're like seeing every new thing that comes out. And the thing that was just so dramatic about this is I don't ever remember a therapy that came in that so directly and immediately affected quality life the way this did. It was like, I don't know if there ever has been anything like that. There hasn't really. You talk about this figure again, how patients who aren't even getting Ruxolinib are drafting off the success of Ruxolinib and their lives are being improved even if they don't get the drug. But outside of myelofibrosis, like you mentioned, Ruxolinib was the first drug to get approved based on making people feel better, right? Improving a specific symptom measurement and improving that on a clinical trial. And every trial that comes along that builds in this patient's reported outcome component cites the comfort studies, looks back and says, look, this drug has been shown to be beneficial and was approved on the basis of making people's lives better. We're going to try to do something similar with that. Yeah, it really is interesting. And in a weird way, at this point you're making about the fact that the people who didn't get Ruxolitinib did better. For some reason, I flashed on AML, where before the venetoclax combinations, the docs in practice, they didn't want to hear about it. They send their younger patients to tertiary care. The older patients, they give them azacitidine or palliative care. And then boom, all of a sudden, they need to really be all over that because now they had something to do. And I think in a way, that's what happened here. You got a tool. It was really fascinating. It was working in jack-negative cases. So people got interested. We were doing a lot of CME at that point on this topic, and we still are, as you can see. Yeah, I can totally imagine if you're a doc in a clinic and normally, oh, myelofibrosis, get your affairs in order. Now you're like, hey, I can make something that makes you feel better in a couple of days. I would be hot to use it too. Well, let's talk about some of the other things that have been looked at with this disease entity, beginning with a metal stat. So certainly... The American Society of Hematology meeting is always a venue for seeing what's on the horizon. And the different types of abstracts that are presented are everything from studies that are just about to lead to approval to things that are still kind of parts of our wild imagination and have a long way to go, but are certainly exciting. 
Intellistat is something that's been around for a while. And it's gone through various phases of development, not only myelofibrosis, but related diseases like myelodysplastic syndromes. And the reason these drugs are being looked at again are because the myelofibrosis and the MPNs are not CML. It's not like we give a jack inhibitor and everything's great. The disease goes into molecular remission and people can live normal lifespans. There are a large number of pathways involved, and this ultimately leads to a failure of those therapies for those patients and disease progression. And even if we look at the best data we have, the aggregate data from the comfort studies, these curves go towards zero. There is no plateau here. So that's why there's a drive to develop new therapies, looking at a lot of different pathways, whether we're talking about microenvironment, proliferation signaling, immunotherapies, epigenetic regulators, or things that focus on hematopoietic stem cell maintenance, survival, and differentiating, such as telomerase inhibition. So the one telomerase inhibitor that's really been studied quite a bit in myelofibrosis, MPNs, as well as I mentioned MDS, is Intellistat. And so it's a telomerase inhibitor. So telomerase is the enzyme that extends the end of the caps of the chromosomes, protecting the genome. And telomerase is requisite for immortality. Not immortality of sci-fi, but certainly immortality of cells growing in culture. If you inhibit it, telomerase, those cells will eventually die in the culture. And so the thought is that we can really get into that hemopoietic stem cell niche and root out the malignant stem cells. And this was a reanalysis of the Embark study. The Embark study was a randomized, single-blinded phase two study of Intellistat in two different doses, 4.7 milligrams per kilogram and 9.4 milligrams per kilogram in relapsed refractory myelofibrosis. So these are patients who had received prior treatments, including JAK inhibitors. And this is the initial top-line data from that study, showing a dose-response curve, if you will, for overall survival, for symptom response as well as spleen response in these patients. So in this reanalysis, they wanna kind of take a look at that survival again and try to explore markers that associated with survival. Kind of understand what population should we really investigate this drug when we develop our new trials for this therapy. And so again, this is a nice little curve of the overall survival. And this is particularly the 9.4 milligram per kilogram dose and shows a potential improvement over that of the 4.7 milligram per kilogram dose. And so this is what we were starting with in this particular analysis. And we move on to look at different risk factors. Well, the one risk factor that really popped out in this analysis was bone marrow fibrosis. So improvement in bone marrow fibrosis associated with a better overall survival. Now you might step back and say, well, duh. Yeah, of course, if you're making the disease better, people are going to live longer. But this has not really ever been shown before that affecting myelofibrosis grade is really correlating with survival. And that's the beginning of the concept of this disease modification, where we're going in and rooting out disease. And so that was a really important step to show with this reanalysis of the data. So they looked at a number of other factors, disease risk prior to starting on therapy, transfusions, all these different risk factors that may affect overall survival. And there wasn't any clear population that they identified that should be studied in more detail that potentially all patients with the right dosing could benefit from this therapy. And ultimately out of this has come the IMPACT MF study, which should start enrolling patients sometime this quarter. And this is a phase three study, which is taking patients who have refractory myelofibrosis, high-risk myelofibrosis that is, so intermediate two or high-risk by the DIPSS, 
with adequate platelet counts because this can cause some thrombocytopenia. They are randomized between Intellistat and best available therapy, looking at markers of response, both spleen and symptom burden, as well as overall survival. And that, in fact, is the primary endpoint, overall survival for this study. Any other tolerability issues other than cytopenias with this drug? So cytopenias is the big one. The other challenge is it's, it's not a pill. So thinking about different therapies in the different trials that are out there and drugs being developed, that kind of sets it apart. That patients are actually going to have to come in every three weeks to get their dose. That's a little bit different than taking a pill every day. Normally, when you prescribe, say, ruxolitinib or another therapy, they get their pills, they go home, and you may not see them for three or four months or even longer in some instances. So I think that's going to make it a little bit more challenging. But certainly in this space, there are limited treatment options. The approved therapy is going to be fedratinib, but it does have its shortcomings, and fedratinib will not work forever. And again, the thought is that we can actually get after the root of the disease and may lead to long-term improvements in survival and responses. Based on what you've seen to this point, is this a drug you'd like to be using right now, or would you like to see more data? I mean, I know you'd like to see more data, but is there enough data to use it? At this point, I don't think there's enough data to use it. These studies that have been done so far, the phase two studies have been really small and included a kind of highly select population. And so really, we need large randomized controlled trials to understand how well this is going to work. Because again, there were spleen responses, there were symptom improvements, but they weren't so huge in number where you could say, okay, let's at least approve the drug and use the drug based on that and then see if we can sort out a survival advantage otherwise. This is something I think that's really going to have to show a survival advantage because the whole preposition here is it's, it's affecting disease modification. So we're really going to need to see that. So I feel like I'm talking about venetoclax like three times a day now on programs. I'm really curious to hear about nevitoclax, oral, another oral I want to know what the difference is between nevitoclax and venetoclax, but anyhow. Yeah, so the other twin here. So venetoclax's counterpart, nevitoclax, is being looked at in myelofibrosis. There are some subtle differences between venetoclax and nevitoclax, but at the end of the day, they are both inhibitors of the same pathway, hitting that BCL2 and BCLX pathway. They might hit them in slightly different ways. There might be some slightly different off-target effects. There have been preclinical studies the classic petri dish mouse model kind of stuff that has shown maybe an advantage of nevitoclax over venetoclax. There may be a little bit less myelosuppression with nevitoclax, which makes it a more attractive option in myelofibrosis compared to venetoclax. So there are a number of studies that have been completed as well as ongoing randomized phase three trials. And right now there are two big trials that are ongoing, one with the combination of nevitoclax and ruxolitinib in the upfront setting, previously untreated patients with the JAK inhibitor, and then as well as a large randomized trial looking at nevitoclax plus ruxolitinib in the post-JAK inhibitor space. This here was kind of a reanalysis of a trial that was already completed, already being done with nevitoclax and ruxolitinib. At the bottom of this slide, you can see the figure showing the study. So the reason that this study is a good example is because it's one of these add-back strategies trials. The vast majority of trials going on right now in second line, if you will, myelofibrosis, so patients who have already had a JAK inhibitor, most of these trials are these add-back strategies where a patient has lost a response or never really had a great response to a JAK inhibitor, and we're adding something on top to either regain the response or make the drug work better. 
So this is a prime example of the majority of trials ongoing in myelofibrosis right now. This analysis includes 34 patients with an age and performance status you would expect for such a trial, median age of 68, decent performance status. Most of the patients on the study had a JAK2 mutation as opposed to a calreticulin mutation. There were no MIPLE driver mutations here, although we know that it's the other mutations that really drive the disease. It's these high-risk mutations, ASXL1, SRS2, and such on, that really identify these super high-risk patients that often do less well with a JAK inhibitor over time and are more predisposed for disease progression. This is a nice waterfall plot here of the overall efficacy of the 34 patients treated on this particular trial. This is at week 24. The figure on the left is the spleen volume response. There's a very faint dashed line showing a 35% reduction in spleen volume. And you can see the curve goes down. So patient spleens were shrinking and even a large number had that magic 35% reduction in their spleen volume. And then the right-hand side are the total symptom scores. So at week 24, a significant number of patients had a reduction in their total symptom score, and even some had a more than 50% reduction in their total symptom score. So again, patients not having an optimal response in ruxolitinib went on the combination, and their spleen shrunk, and their symptoms got better. The one question is, are we overcoming some sort of resistance? Is there a high-risk population where we can really see a benefit of this combination? Because you don't want to add drugs on that are going to add toxicity without really kind of driving things forward. So they did an analysis where they looked at the high-risk molecular types versus the non-high-risk molecular types. So again, patients not only with their driver mutation, but the second and third mutations that predict for a more aggressive disease course. And really, there was no difference in the responses in the patients who had kind of your run-of-the-mill normal myelofibrosis and those were high-risk molecular types. They also, in this analysis, showed a lot of cytokine plots where by adding on nevetoclax on top of the ruxolitinib, they saw reductions in key cytokines. So basically, these figures are large panels, lots of graphs, and I didn't show them here because they're awfully confusing to look at. But the idea is that once adding in the second agent, nevetoclax, cytokine levels decreased, which did correlate with responses. Again, nevetoclax is being examined going forward in large randomized trials at the moment. So I'd ask you the same question about nevetoclax right now, based on the data that's out there, would you like to be using it? So I think in the post-JAK inhibitor setting, it would be a great drug to have. I would not advocate for the use of venetoclax as a kind of a available substitute. There's just no data there, and it could be a very toxic combination, and we don't know that. But I think based on this very, very tiny amount of data, it would be pretty interesting in that relapse refractory setting to gain back responses. Again, so someone who's on ruxolitinib or fedratinib not having an optimal response or decreased the efficacy over time after having an initial response, adding this drug in, regaining that response, I think would be a very useful thing. The upfront setting is a little bit trickier, and I struggle with this a lot. So there are a number of combination therapies that are being studied in the upfront setting. So patients who have never had a JAK inhibitor, looking at combinations of, say, ruxolitinib and nevetoclax, ruxolitinib and BET inhibitors, and I kind of scratched my head because we showed these earlier curves where patients do really well on ruxolitinib for many years. And so how do you know that someone is going to go on the therapy and really have that added benefit? And is it better to try a single agent? And then if that doesn't work, add a second agent on, or is it better to do both up front? So a sequencing question. And I think as we see more and more drugs approved for myelofibrosis, we're really going to start to struggle with sequencing. It was easy when there was one drug. 
the sequencing is pretty straightforward. But I could see us start to get into a position like other diseases such as multiple myeloma where you kind of struggle with the sequencing of JAK inhibitors and second agents approved. I was thinking about hepatic cellular cancer too, where they just had serafinib a couple of years ago. And now it's insane with all the various options. But just coming back to these basic issues in terms of management trials of these new upfront strategies, is there any way to separate out patients who are destined to have suboptimal responses? And globally, as you say, the typical run-of-the-mill situation, what fraction of patients really don't have good clinical responses? And is there any way to predict who that's going to be up front? Yeah, I think that's something we really struggle with. There are certainly some that will point to this high-risk molecular type, like the Nivetoclax abstract we've talked about. And patients with additional mutations are less likely to have this profound and durable benefit from a single-agent JAK inhibitor. And so that's one way to kind of think about it. But they still enjoy some benefit for some time. The other thing that's being looked at is this kind of marrow deplete population. So patients who have maybe less cellularity in their marrow, more along, maybe even starting drifting toward the myelodysplastic type subtype of myelofibrosis, if you will, and heading towards those overlap syndromes. And people on that end of the spectrum may have less benefit from a JAK inhibitor directly. It may benefit from either combination therapies or different therapies altogether. So just to keep tabs on other aspects of using JAK inhibitors in MPN, on the use of JAK inhibitors, including ruxolitinib and PV and ET. Yeah, so we did discuss the one abstract here about the RESPONSE2 study, but really with ruxolitinib and ET, there were the kind of two main studies. There was the MAGIC trial that was done, as well as this kind of larger phase 1B study that was completed. And the improvements in platelet counts were modest. Some patients definitely had improvement, but it wasn't certainly the home run. And we weren't seeing the degree of platelet count control in those studies that we see with hematocrit control in polycythemia vera. There was a randomized phase three trial that was launched in the US comparing ruxolitinib versus anagrolide in second line after hydroxyurea, but it really failed to enroll a significant amount of patients. So I think the question of how ruxolitinib plays into the therapy of ET is still an open question. And I'm not sure if it will be answered. Other drugs are being developed in this space. There is an LSD-1 inhibitor that is currently under investigation in ET. A trial is open and enrolling patients. Other drugs like ropeg interferon are being developed in essential thrombocythemia and I think have a good shot of impacting the field significantly. So I'm not sure how ruxolitinib is going to enter the realm of essential thrombocythemia. So in non-polycythemia vera, it is already approved after hydroxyurea. I think it's pretty well established in that space. And with its only competition right now, probably being the interferons in terms of approved agents. But I think it needs to be wary of these other drugs being developed in polycythemia vera too. There was an abstract presented at the annual meeting on an agent called PTG300. And PTG300 is a really interesting compound. It is a hepcidin mimetic. Again, when you mention hepcidin to a bunch of hematologists, they're all going to nerd out. So just that alone got people excited. The concept is that it fakes the bone marrow out into thinking it's iron deficient. That's how we treat PV otherwise. We phlebotomize people, make them iron deficient, and thus they can't produce red cells. So this hepcidin mimetic mimics iron deficiency on kind of a hematopoietic level. But the body is able to replete its iron. So these patients, the 18 patients that they presented, 
that have been enrolled in the study so far, they were all requiring phlebotomies to control their hematocrit with and without hydroxyurea or other cytoreductive agents. And once they all went on PTG 300, very few of them actually needed any phlebotomies at all. I think there were only three phlebotomies that were needed in total across the whole entire population of patients. And they also showed that markers of iron deficiency improved over the first several weeks of the study too. These patients were repleting their iron and not needing phlebotomies, which is pretty exciting. And can you go back again through the mechanism of action? Yeah. So it's a hepcidin mimetic. So hepcidin is the master iron regulator in the body. So when we become iron deficient, hepcidin levels go up. And hepcidin is the kind of agent that helps regulate transfer of iron in and out of iron stores. And by PTG 300 going into the body, acting like hepcidin, it basically fakes the bone marrow out into thinking it's iron deficient, thus reducing erythropoiesis. But on the side, iron metabolism still continues and the body is still able to absorb iron and actually replete iron despite being on PTG 300. So it really kind of acts on the hematopoietic level, but not elsewhere, which is kind of neat. Again, the way I describe it to patients is it basically fakes the bone marrow into thinking it's iron deficient, so it doesn't make red cells anymore, but the rest of the body doesn't see that effect. So I know from working with you before, and as you just demonstrated, you're great at explaining how stuff works. I'm just kind of <laughs> curious because I've heard a lot about this APR compound that's a P53 unfolding thing. Do you know anything about that? Oh, I don't know if you saw the press release. I think it was a press release. Came out and showed the study did not reach its primary endpoint. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that was the big great hope. So is that going to be it? Is that going to be it for that drug? I hope not. But being a nihilistic person, sometimes I think it is the end for it. I was still trying to figure out how it works. You and me both. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we do a lot with MDM2 inhibitors and MPNs. And that one I feel like is way easier to explain. You're inhibiting the inhibitor of the inhibitor of P53 and that's how it works. But a drug that took the worst of the worst, the worst mutation that we have in all of cancer medicine and is really trying to get after it, I think is such a noble and exciting effort. And I hope that it doesn't stop there. And I think anecdotally, we've seen responses. I had two patients with MDS, P53 mutated MDS, who were not having benefit from hypomethylene agent, went on that study and then got into a remission. And one of them actually went on to transplant, got into enough remission to go on to transplant. She's been transplanted and has been doing well since a little bit of graft versus host disease, but that's outside the realm of the APR drug. So I definitely have anecdotal success stories with that drug. It's just unfortunate that in the large randomized trial, it didn't do what it needed to do. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about what's been going on the last couple of years in terms of AML in older patients and specifically in terms of the venetoclax combinations, venetoclax, HMA. All of a sudden, general medical oncologists are yeah. like deep into this stuff. Any thoughts about what's going on? Anything that came out at ASH that caught your attention as it relates to this scenario of AML in the older patient? Yeah, so I think probably the overarching theme is it's exciting times for AML in the older patients. For the longest time, it was just low-dose ARC and hypomethylene agent. Now we're seeing lots of therapies out there. Venetoclax is out there. Other therapies are coming along. We're looking at specific inhibitors, IDH1 and 2 inhibitors, and others. So I think it's exciting. The venetoclax story is really interesting. I think when it first started coming along, we kind of took the kind of approach I always credit Eli Esty for saying this. There's no drug combination that's too stupid to test, right? So our ability to treat AML, particularly in the older population, is just so 
inadequate that we really need to find something that does better. And so I think there was enough preclinical data there to suggest, yes, let's give venetoclax a try. In the early studies, yeah, we saw improved response rates, but we've been burned so many times in the situation where we look at a phase two trial and see a better complete response rate or a better overall response rate. But then when we do the randomized phase three trial, the combination, it's no better than azacitidine. So there was a lot of like, it looks better. Is it going to pan out? And it did. And then there was this kind of second story woven in there with the toxicity. It's clearly more toxic than hypomethylene agent alone. And it's been a big learning curve over the last year on how to deliver this therapy safely to patients. You know, thinking about mainly the fungal pneumonias and the increased risk of infections on the combination. And that's something even as a practice, we're starting to learn now and be more efficient about and trying to prophylax patients appropriately where they don't get infections that end up in the hospital often. And so I think it's been just a lot of cautious optimism all along. And then once the data came out and we were able to move forward, learning how to do it properly in clinic and deliver the therapy as an outpatient as it really can be beneficial. Clearly, the biggest question we get from oncologists is management of cytopenias, particularly at the end of the first cycle. Any thoughts or recommendations about that? Yeah, particularly in patients with AML, the first cycle, first three cycles, you're going to get cytopenias. And if you don't treat the disease, it's not going to get better. So we often kind of plow through those first couple of cycles, independent of the cytopenias, and try to provide enough transfusion support to really get them through. I see a lot of patients, they'll get the first cycle, and then I'll be almost four or five months before they get the next cycle. And then you wonder, well, are you really making progress there? Certainly, there's a fair amount of data in the hypomethylene agent realm, the partner for venetoclax showing that the effect wears off pretty quickly. And then if you're not keeping on time with the cycles, you lose the positive benefit there. So really, early on, the tricky part is trying to push on safely. And if you have the ability to provide the transfusion support, you really need to and then protection from infections when the patients become neutropenic, whether you're talking about fungal prophylaxis or bacterial prophylaxis, and really pushing through those first couple of cycles. And then if you're into cycle three and you're still dealing with a lot of cytopenias related to therapy, then maybe potentially backing off doses at that point. So what about patients who transition from MDS to AML on a hypomethylating agent? And also what about patients with myelofibrosis? We develop AML. Yeah. So it was kind of funny. So we've had a lot of discussions about particularly patients who have myelofibrosis and MPNs that progress to accelerated blast phase or AML and looking at the combination of hypomethylene agent plus venetoclax. And certainly it can be an effective therapy. And we had an email chain kind of going around saying, do you think this is really a combination to have in your clinical experience trying it? Have you seen responses? And kind of the feeling on the email chain that I was part of was like, ah, it seems kind of toxic. It doesn't seem to be doing a whole lot more than what maybe hypomethylene agents are doing alone. And then a group of folks started to put together a retrospective analysis, kind of a let's pull our patients together and see what it looks like. And there may be some signals there. There may be some signals of efficacy combining hypomethylene agent plus venetoclax for these folks. So I think if you have a patient who is fit enough, who you are thinking that you declining intensive therapy, but you want to kind of do a little bit more than just a hypomethylene agent alone. You're trying to find that intermediate therapy that really azavenetoclax is. I think it's a reasonable option to do for patients in blast phase MPN 
those who are in the accelerated phase MPN, I probably would still stick with hypomethylene agent alone. I think their disease isn't so overly proliferative that you can get it under control with just a hypomethylene agent and avoid the toxicity. In patients with MDS that progress to AML, I think you kind of have the same concept. As the blasts are progressing up and up, and if you're catching them early enough and they haven't had a hypomethylene agent yet, you can institute a single agent hypomethylene agent. But if the blasts are 30% or more, or if they've already had a hypomethylene agent and have limited other options, I think the combination still would apply there. And there are ongoing trials reporting data now looking at the combination in high-risk MDS. What about CPX in these patients? Those are in better condition. Yeah. So certainly in patients who have MDS that progress to AML, CPX is a great option. It has shown an advantage over induction chemo, certainly in patients with myelodysplastic background in their bone marrow. So despite us putting things in the bins of MDS and AML, it's really a spectrum. And those patients would potentially benefit from CPX. There hasn't been any data really that I'm aware of in MPNs that have progressed to AML. I would be pretty concerned about the myelosuppression that we see with CPX. Certainly in the original trials, as well as in our clinical experience, some of these patients can be ancytopenic for months. We tend to see that a lot with patients who get induction chemotherapy and MPNs more so than we see with de novo AML. So I haven't used it yet for that reason amongst just the issues with insurance reimbursement and otherwise, but I would really be concerned about prolonged cytopenias. There are a couple of really interesting studies looking at low-dose CPX for patients with MDS and older patients with AML, and that might be a good option. Oftentimes on rounds, I joke about patients with AML that they have a cytarabine deficiency and we need to fix that deficit. And so this would be one way of getting cytarabine to these patients who maybe full-dose cytarabine in the context of full-dose CPX or induction may not do well. That's interesting. I have not heard that before. Reduce How much of a dose reduction? Think of it as like low-dose RSC, but with CPX. Oh. It's an investigator-initiated trial that we got here that just opened, actually. And so I know that we're looking at it, and a few other centers have considered it as well. So a few other MDS questions, stuff related to ASH. Decitabine, cetazuridine, oral decitabine. Any comments? So I think oral decitabine is a nice option. This pandemic has made us think very differently about how we treat patients. And you think about someone coming into the office five days every month, that's potential exposure. Particularly early on in the pandemic, we were very concerned about can people get it in our facilities? Now we have protocols in place and really we feel that our hospitals and clinics are incredibly safe places to be. But a patient comes to our clinic, they're gonna drive. They're probably going to have to get gas. They're going to have to stop at the gas station. They're going to have to maybe stop at a McDonald's and get their lunch. Those are potential exposure risks along the way. And if we can keep someone safe by keeping them home, there's an advantage to that. And this may be like telemedicine visits, something that spurs on development and use of more home-based therapies. And so I think it has a role there. I think certainly like to see a little bit more data out on that a little bit more long-term data, is it really better? Because the tricky part is azacitidine is the agent that showed survival advantage in randomized controlled trials. Decitabine really didn't. We often use them interchangeably, but you go to the original study, it didn't show their survival advantage. The studies that have been published so far showed a pharmacologic equivalent between oral decitabine, cesuridine combination versus subcutaneous decitabine. So it didn't show that it could result in a survival advantage. And I think that's the kind of key piece. But 
this pandemic that we're in may drive the development forward as a safety issue for patients and a convenience issue as well. That's interesting. Of course, you've been asking people about pandemic-related issues for this past year, because when you think about it, in the past, anytime this issue of oral versus parental choice came up, everybody would say, oh, yeah, it's better oral, but their heart really wasn't in it. And now their heart's in it big time, of course, depending on where they live, but pretty much everybody. That leads to the next question, CC486. That's the oral azacitidine maintenance. So, I mean, the trial data is out there and it is approved. And I think it has a role. And where I see it, I don't see it as a replacement for IV azacitidine again. I think we would need a randomized trial, some showing a survival advantage. But there is a population of patients with AML who can get their initial therapy and probably should go on to transplant, but may have an issue where they can't. And I think that's really where the strength of this drug is going to come through. The reason it's on the top of mind is I just had a patient in that situation, was diagnosed with AML, got their initial treatment, did really well, is in a great remission, but just due to a lot of different issues, can't go to transplant. And they really should because they are a fair amount of risk for relapse. And anything we can do to stave off that relapse either lengthen the time until it happens or hopefully eliminate it altogether, I think is something that can be quite valuable. So in this particular individual, I am going to use the oral azacitidine agent as a maintenance therapy. Again, because I normally probably would have taken this patient to transplant, but due to circumstances, I was unable to. So you have a patient who says, I really, really don't want to come into clinic and I've got the funds to deal with this. They've got AML and they're 80 years old and they want to get CC486 and venetoclax. Yeah. An all oral therapy. I think it's exciting. And I look forward to the day where we can deliver all oral therapy. I do think at the end, it will hopefully be a great combination that can be used and make the facilitation of treatment much easier. But right now there's no data. And if the patient can afford it, I think it's fair to sit down and have the conversation. We're using these agents. There's no data to base this. I'd also kind of rebut that viewpoint by saying, well, we're still going to need to monitor your blood counts frequently. You're probably going to need transfusions. So honestly, the amount of time it's going to reduce you coming to the clinic may be quite minimal. Yeah, down the road, if you're no longer needing transfusions and we don't have to check your blood counts so frequently, it may be better. But I would venture a guess that in the next three to six months, you as an individual on this combination therapy, even though it's oral, are probably going to have to see us almost as much as you would otherwise. So I'm not sure, even if you have the resources, is it to your advantage as an individual to do that? So one more MDS topic again, relevant to ASH, loose Patercept. Yeah. So loose Patercept, I think the approval is there. The metal study has been published. There's not a lot of new data on loose Patercept that's really kind of moving the needle forward in MDS. I think what will be interesting to see over time is the uptake. We talk about these real-world studies being done with ruxolitinib. We talked about that earlier and adratinib about the uptake and the application of it in non-clinical trial settings. And I think that is going to be what I really want to see with loose patercept going forward. How often is it getting used and what situations? Right now, we're kind of thinking about it, particularly patients with ring blasts, of course, but patients who have already tried ESAs. And I honestly don't see it supplanting erythropoiesis stimulate agents, but is it going to kind of wedge in on maybe IMIDs? So lenalidomide and its role in non-Del5Q MDS improving anemia. You could see it wedging in there as a potential 
line of therapy for anemia and MDS. And so I think what I'm looking forward into the future on loose patercept is its uptake in the real world in MDS. How about in your real world? Are you using it? Yeah, I've used quite a bit of loose patercept. In my practice, I also see, again, a fair number of myelofibrosis patients. And we did participate in the phase two trial of loose patercept, and we saw quite a few responses. I had one patient, it was the most remarkable thing. She was getting transfused about every week to every two weeks. And she had not just a red cell antibody, but I think every red cell antibody, all 250 of them. And so it was incredibly hard to find blood. Pretty much she'd get transfused one week and we'd start looking for the next unit instantly because it took a week to two weeks to get her blood. She had so many antibodies. But she went on loose patercepts, did need a transfusion for well over two years. It was a pretty remarkable response. Wow. And it was just so hard to get her transfusions and so complicated that it just was a big relief when she no longer needed them. So that was on study. Outside of clinical trials, in a couple instances where insurance did not cover erythropoiesis stimulating agents for patients with myelofibrosis, I've used loose patercept. It's been covered. In patients who have had prior erythropoiesis stimulating agents, I've also used it. There are a couple of instances on the phase two study where a patient was on ruxolitinib became anemic, we started loose patercept, brought the hemoglobin levels back up, helped to resolve the anemia, and then we were able to increase the ruxolitinib for those patients, improving their spleen and symptom response. Now, again, these are anecdotes, but we've been able to do that with loose patercept. And I think that's been an exciting development and something we're thinking about in a practical sense with that drug. It's really interesting because when you think about the mechanism of anemia in these patients and how jack inhibitor affects that and you wonder from like a pathophysiologic point of view what would make sense biologically in esa or loose patercept i have no idea but any thoughts yeah i actually do have a thought for this one so we think about it epo via the jackstat pathway works on early erythropoiesis so if you think about those baby red cells developing over time in the bone marrow and then them being released so the epo jackstat axis is early on in erythropoiesis Lucepatercept and sotatercept work on late erythropoiesis. So in MDS, the thought is that the mutation happens somewhere in the middle of erythropoiesis. So you can give EPO all you want, but the water doesn't get over the dam. And lucepatercept works downstream, so it'll just go. And kind of the same concept in ruxolitinib-treated myelofibrosis is you're inhibiting kind of the early phases, but you're overdriving the later phases of it. So they're kind of hitting different phases of erythropoiesis, and that's a differential between ESAs and loose patercepts in these spaces. So you're saying also in the myelofibrosis, theoretically, you would think the loose patercept would be more effective? More effective, because if you're blocking, particularly when you're thinking about the combination of loose patercept and ruxolitinib, so you're blocking early erythropoiesis with the JAK inhibitor, the JAK2 inhibitor specifically, and then you're accentuating late erythropoiesis with the loose patercept. So you're kind of working after the lesion, downstream from the lesion to improve anemia. This concludes our program. Special thanks to Dr. Gerds, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Oncology Today.